book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Nehemiah chapter 13. We'll be looking at the whole chapter in our time together today. I was on the internet yesterday, and um, on this whole issue of keeping your promise. And it had a whole list of people who had opinions on this whole topic. So I thought I might read a couple to you. These apparently are famous people, many of which I don't even know who they are. So, but I'll tell you, I'll mention it because you may know. I wasn't sure who they all were. But listen to what some of these people say about keeping your promises. Jared Kent says this, Every politician has a promising career. Unfortunately, most of them do not keep those promises. Bree Despin, the problem with promises is that once you've made one, it's bound to be broken. It's like an unspoken cosmic rule. Molly Ringwald, the moment you make someone promise anything is the same moment you ask them to lie to you. Stephen Richards, promises are only as strong as the person who gives them. And then one great cynic, Georgette Heyer, apparently she lived in the 1920s. She said, as soon as one promises not to do something, it becomes the one thing above all others that one most wishes to do. It's like somewhat cynical in this whole idea of keeping promises. What I want you to notice today is what Nehemiah 13 teaches us about keeping promises. So, so to do that, Mark, why don't we flip to the second slide. Um, just by quick way of review, we, we kind of looked at this way, way back when we started the whole series on Nehemiah, only to kind of orient you to these kind of three waves when, when the Israelites went back into the land. It's the last wave that we've been focusing on from the book of Nehemiah where they actually were rebuilding the wall. And what we know, let, let me just give you some time frame here again, so, so you're, you're oriented. Don't lose me on this. So Nehemiah goes back in 444, and we know from chapter 5 that he's actually a governor there for 12 years. However, Nehemiah 1, uh, 1 to 12 largely is focusing around just that first year that he's back in the land. We don't know, frankly, we don't know much about his governorship, okay? That he was a good governor, but that's about all we know. Then what we find out, you see where it says Nehemiah's second return, sometime after 432, what we know is Nehemiah went back to Persia, and we don't know how long. Some scholars think for two years, maybe three years, some say up to seven years. So let's say five, okay? Be compromisers, all right? So he goes back to Persia for about five years. And then, unexpectedly, he's going to come back into the land and show up again. And, and I, I, I kind of, when I read parts of Nehemiah 13, I, I kind of have this image. You, you know when your parents are out and you know, you're engaged in doing things you shouldn't be doing, thinking they're going to come home late and they show up early? It, it, it's kind of almost that feel when you get to Nehemiah 13. So what I want to do is this. I'm going to go way back in that first year 
when Nehemiah came and after they built the wall, they had this great dedication service because what happens in the text is we start there in Nehemiah chapter 12 and then we run beyond his first governorship of 12 years to this period of time when he's gone for about five years and when he actually comes back. And these two events are almost taken and brought together like this. And the question that I'm going to ask you at the end is why? Because it would have been very, very easy for Nehemiah to end at the end of chapter 12. But it doesn't. Does that make sense? So where I want to start, and um, here's what I want you to notice first. I'm going to read a couple verses to you. And I want you to see, first of all, way back here, Connected with the dedication of the wall, what promises specifically did the people make? Okay? What promises? And then we're going to come down here to this gap period and find out what happened to those promises. And then how Nehemiah handles it when he comes back. Does that make sense? So we're going to go back there first and see what, what, what we find out. First promise, if you go back in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10, in verse 30, the Bible says this. Now listen, listen to what the people are saying. This is the group of people gathered together saying, yeah, this is what we're going to do. Verse 30. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. And write it down, Nehemiah. We will not intermarry with folks that do not rest and trust and believe in Jehovah God. Okay? That's what they promise. Here's another promise. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 31. When the neighboring people bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and we'll cancel our, all debts. And so they say, God, your program, the priority of honoring you and worshiping you is more important than any fiscal advancement for ourselves. We promise to honor the Sabbath. We promise not to intermarry. Okay? Pretty good. That's good stuff, right? I mean, we're going like, yeah. They make some more promises. Go over to chapter 12, verse 44, directly connected with the dedication. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits, and tithes. From the fields around the towns, they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. And, he, and basically in this section, he says, look, 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 look. All the stuff connected to just running this place, the temple, we'll provide, we'll provide the, the, the funding they need. We'll provide for the Levites, the priests, the wood, the sacrifice. We'll provide it all. And, and all, everybody goes like, yeah. Okay. So, so at every level, intermarrying, no. Sabbath, yeah. Provide for all these people, yeah. You know, they're, they're kind of, they're chanting. They're on this kind of this role here a little bit. And there's one other one. 
Chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, listen to what it says. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud. So we're still connected to the dedication. The book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. Because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. And he can't help but give you this side note. <laughs> Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. So here, here's what he's saying. When it comes to the court itself of the temple, foreigners unless they were proselytes and really open to this, they were excluded. In particular, Ammonites and Moabites. Uh-uh, court of the temple, no way. So everybody's gone, yeah, the Bible says it, we do it. Our associations, who we marry and who we allow in here, no way. I mean, we're going to be pure, providing, prioritizing God on the Sabbath and taking care of the... Yeah, we'll do it all. So that's the chant. Each one of those is violated in chapter 13. But, but back here, yeah, it just doesn't last. What happens in the gap period? What happens when Nehemiah comes back and why does Nehemiah choose to even include it in the story? Because I have to tell you, if Nehemiah would have checked with me, tongue-in-cheek, I wasn't even around, I would have said, hey, pal, why don't you end on a high note? <laughs> you know what I mean? Why don't you end the book saying, man, we did this dedication, and man, we were ready to go. And just like, stop. Why this add-on? I think you're going to find it's very important, actually. So, in light of those promises, starting in Nehemiah 13, verse 4, look what happens with each one of those promises. Okay? Verse 4. But before this, and, and, and what he's referring to when he says, but before this is, but before I came back that second time, in that five-year gap period, Okay? But before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. Okay, now you're thinking like storehouses. Isn't that where you put all the grain and all the equipment that's tied into all the temple worship? Yeah, that's what you do. Okay, good. <laughs> Look what happens with those storerooms. In the court of the temple, where there's not supposed to be any Ammonites or Moabites, right? what it says he was closely associated with Tobiah we know back from the beginning of Nehemiah that Tobiah was the Ammonite who opposed the Nehemiah coming back into the land I thought this guy was gone oh no no I mean after all these years I mean he is lurking he was closely associated with Tobiah and he had provided him with a large room 
formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contribution for the priests. Wait a second. Didn't you guys like read about this and say, no Ammonites in the court. And Nehemiah is gone for a couple years and you don't just let him in the court, you take Tobiah the Ammonite, the great enemy of God, and you put, you give him one of those storerooms. Yeah, that's what we did. Yikes. This is what the text goes on to say. Verse 6. While all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. That was in 432. Sometime later, and we don't know that time period. We're guessing, five years. We don't know exactly. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. And that is the father showing up a little bit earlier than the kids thought. Right? There it is. And they're in for a bit of a surprise. Here, I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. So Nehemiah shows up after this five-year gap or whatever it was. And he can't believe it. I mean, they made all these promises about the court, and you let Tobiah actually have one of those storerooms, for goodness sakes. And in and, and a way that's somewhat reminiscent of what our Lord did when he came into the temple. Remember what Jesus did when he came into the temple? I mean, he's flipping over tables and the whole works. Man, he goes in and he just cleans house. Everything, chuck it out on the road now. Tobias' stuff is gone. I mean, he doesn't mess around. I mean, he just, he clears that place out. He purifies it and he says, and now fill it with what was supposed to be there from the beginning. Wow. How are you feeling if you're Nehemiah? You know how I'm feeling? I gave 12 years to this thing. 12 years. They make all these promises. I leave for just four or five years. And it's worse than the promise. It's not just breaking the promise. It's going way beyond that. That's hard, isn't it? But it's not just that. Look at what he says here secondly. In verse 10. Verse 10, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. And that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. And Nehemiah says, whoa, 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 whoa. Didn't, didn't you guys promise to provide for the Levites? Because the Levites would only come up to the temple periodically, but they, they, weren't, they weren't wealthy people. They needed help. They needed funding for all that stuff. Did, did you promise you would 
provide that? And, and now they're, they're not able to come. Nehemiah's going like, what, what, what is going on here? Verse 11, how does he respond? So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I, then I called them together and, and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a, a, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, their assistant. Because these men were considered trustworthy, they were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. So he says, he comes back and he says, what have you guys been doing? And so he looks for faithful men. He says, look, you do that, you do that, you do that, you do that. What, what happened to your promise? Come on. This is the work of God. Do you not prioritize that? Isn't that important to you? And it's not just that. Look at what happens in verse 15. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, I missed one thing. One of the things that's really, really interesting. Four times in chapter 13 of Nehemiah, Nehemiah says quickie prayers to God that always begin with the word remember. Three of the times he says, remember me. One time he says, remember them for the evil that they have done. And I, I, I read it, and I love it, but I hear a bit of sadness in it, don't you? I mean, moving all the way up to chapter 12. Chapter 12 was like in major key, wasn't it? I, I'm not a musician, but I, I do know there's a difference between major key and minor key. I, like, I know that one, okay? Don't know much beyond that, but I do know that. 12 is major key. Chapter 13 feels like it's in minor key to me. And, and, and he goes through these two experiences. In verse 14, he offers his prayer up to God. He says in verse 14, remember me for this, O oh my God. And, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and services. God, I, I've worked 12 years. I was gone this short period of time, and I feel like I feel like it's all gone. God, remember me. Do, do, do you hear the, the frustration of it in his voice? There's another problem. Look at verse 15. In those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in the grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Now wait a second. Didn't you guys promise we will honor the Sabbath. We won't do any business on the Sabbath. We won't allow people to come in and do commerce on the Sabbath. We will honor the Sabbath. Isn't that what they said? And Nehemiah comes in and he says, your commerce is every bit as active on the Sabbath as it is every other day of the, of the week. 
The Sabbath is supposed to be sanctified wholly into God. Like, what are you doing? How's he handle this one? Notice what the text says. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath day to the people of Judah. So what you have is you have people, foreigners, that are living in Jerusalem. No problem. That makes a whole lot of sense. They don't give a rip about the Sabbath. So they're just thinking, hey, it's another good day to do business. So they do commerce. They bring it inside and everybody's happy and everybody's making money. And God is forgotten. That's what they do. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, the leaders, the leaders should have known better. What is this wicked thing that you are doing? Desecrating the Sabbath day. Didn't your forefathers do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. Guys, Do you, ever, um, do you ever have a scratch on a CD? And when you play that CD, it keeps repeating. We got a great Michael Card CD that I love. But I don't play it much. Because it's got a bunch of scratches on it. And so it'll be like, and God, and God, and God, and God, and God. And who says, Shirley, would you please throw that off? It's driving me crazy. You know, I mean, you, you, have you had stuff like that? And it just repeats, 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 repeats. Nehemiah is looking back at the history of Israel. He's saying, you guys, and he didn't know what CDs were. I get that. But you guys are like a scratched CD. You just keep repeating and doing the same thing again and again and again and again and again. And don't you know where this always ends up? Because under the old covenant, all we ever do is fail. He's frustrated. I get it. He has to go on, though, and handle the Sabbath issue. Verse 19, when evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. Because, you know, they don't know. Is this just a bark or a bite from this guy? Is he just saying something? Or is he going to really put some teeth into it? Verse 21. But I warned them and said... Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. And apparently they thought he had a bite, not merely a bark. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. And then he offers another prayer. Did you see that? He goes through all of this process. He says, man, they promised that, and they promised that, and they promised that. And he says this. Remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. God, 
we have nothing to fall back on but your loyal, loving faithfulness. Because we are an unfaithful people. God, remember me. Do you see it? It's minor key, folks. It's not major key, it's minor key. There's more. Verse 23. How about this intermarriage issue? Look at verse 23. And, and what you're going to find on the intermarriage issue, it has two sections to it. It's what happens with lay people and the priests. So listen to what he says. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. They spoke Aramaic. And this was probably either a dialect off of Aramaic or some other modified language. Um, I remember when I lived in Brazil, I could handle Portuguese relatively well. Don't ask me now. I lived in Brazil a couple years when I was in high school. And, um, but I really struggled with Spanish because it was close, but it wasn't close enough. And I knew the difference because I knew Portuguese, so I knew when somebody was speaking Spanish, it wasn't, it wasn't Portuguese. There's overlap, and sometimes there's mild, you can understand some, but, but, but it's different. And, and, and what he's saying here is this. You think about this. People have promised we will not intermarry with Moabites and Ammonites and Ashdodites and all those other ites out there. We won't do it. Because the problem is exactly what happened here. The children gravitated to Jehovah or to Ashdod. Do you see? Their language indicated which way they were actually focusing. And Nehemiah says, I come back. And, 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 and you've, you've intermarried and intermarrying. Jehovah has been lost because they're following the ways of the other gods. And you promised you wouldn't do this. Now, when we read what he did, it's pretty severe, and I'm not suggesting that you do any of these kinds of things. Okay, but I'm just reading it, okay? The text is the text, all right? I rebuked them. That's a good one, verse 25. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. That's, that's it's pretty hard, okay? But, but, but he's probably calling curses down because curses were to be called down, we know, from the Pentateuch, the book of Leviticus, if you don't actually obey what God says. So he's actually quite consistent with the Old Covenant, okay? All right, so I'm just telling you. And the next one's tough. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I'm not suggesting you do any of those things. But what you have to say is that Nehemiah is deeply passionate that Jehovah God and worshiping him is going to be lost in these relationships. Do you see? So don't pull out anybody's hair that you disagree with. Rebuke is fine. Pulling out hair is not a good thing. Okay. Okay. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, 
You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? Now, folks, in the Old Testament, you could call that interracial marriage only because interracial was also interfaith. There was Jehovah, and then there was another faith, which was a wrong faith. In the New Testament, there is nothing against interracial marriage. Nothing. But what the Bible holds precious is there cannot be interfaith marriages. And so when Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, when he talks about widows getting remarried, he says you can remarry, but only in the Lord. And so what continues from Old Covenant to New Covenant is recognizing that the most intimate of all relationships that between, at the human level between a husband and wife, if you are a believer, the kind of person you should be seeking in marriage is one that shares your faith. You say, Doug, what about if you're already married to somebody who isn't a believer? You stay in that relationship to the glory of God. 1 Peter 3, 1 Corinthians 7 is very, very clear on that. You stay because God has placed you there as a light. Not to slip tracks under his or her pillow all the time. Not the point. Gospel of John's would be better than tracks. But anyway, no, no, don't do that. But to live Christ before them so that you might become the conduit through which God draws them to himself. It's very, very powerful. And if you, if you hear today, and I, I don't know, and you say, hey, I'm, I'm kind of on that other side. I'm, I'm married to a believer. We hope you stay in that relationship because God has graciously put you in that relationship that you might be drawn to his son. That's what he does. But if you're not married, don't get married for a mission field. <laughs> it's not the purpose. Okay, God doesn't want that, all right? You marry somebody of like faith. And together you make a difference for the kingdom. What I love about the scripture, wherever we find ourselves, the Bible always gives us hope. So if we've made bad decisions, we can always shine as light for the glory of God. No, isn't that the amazing thing to me about the gospel? The gospel always gives us hope, but it also calls us to make wise decisions along the way. And Nehemiah sees way back here, protect the glory of God because if you marry that direction and your children go that direction, you have not only hurt your relationship, you have hurt their relationship with God. It's generational. So stop it. But it's worse than that. It's not just that he sees it with some people. 
He actually sees it with the priests in particular. Notice verse 28. One of the sons of Joida, son of Eliashib, the high priest. So this is the grandson of the, uh, of the high priest. Was son-in-law to Samballot the Horonite. Did you ever hear of Samballot? Are you kidding me? At the beginning of the book, everything was like, stay away from Samballot and Tobiah. I get to Nehemiah 13, and they're both there. The one guy's hanging out in one of the storerooms. And the other guy is father-in-law to the grandson of the high priest. It's like, hello? I mean, even the leadership's not buying into this thing. Like, come on. (sighs) I drove him away from me. Another remember prayer, but it's remember them. Remember them, O my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. I mean, if the leaders are intermarrying, what hope is there for anybody else? And in summary, he says this in verse 30 and 31. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. And then he ends the book with a prayer. Remember me with favor, oh my God. And the book ends. Remember I asked you earlier? Nehemiah, end your book on a high note. Talk about the glories in chapter 12, the dedication of the, te- uh, of the walls and the people and promises. And Nehemiah says, no, 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 no. I need to add another chapter. And, and, and honestly, I don't know about you, but I get to the end of Nehemiah 13. Not only does he add this chapter, so then what happens, <laughs> right? I mean, like, is there a massive revival in Israel and the nation is forever turned and never the same? Not if you keep reading what we know from the intertestamental history. You know what you find? It is that broken CD again and again and again. It just keeps skipping. They sin. They say they'll change and they don't. And it skips again, and it skips again, and it skips again. Can I give you another overlay that helps me when I think about this? A book that ends open, 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 basically saying, God, I've done my best. All I can ask is that you remember me. There's another really fascinating book. And um, maybe just go to the second slide real quick. Do you see Malachi down there at the bottom? Does somebody see, do you see Malachi? Okay. Anyway, there's debate, but I think there's pretty good evidence that Malachi actually wrote in that five-year period of time when Nehemiah had actually gone back to the king of Persia. Because when you read the book of Malachi, you feel like it's a deja vu with Nehemiah 13. You're going like, corruption of the priesthood. Well, yeah, Malachi talks about that. Inner marriage, yeah, Malachi talks about that. Not providing for the Levites, yeah, Malachi talks about that. Not observing the Sabbath, yeah, Malachi talks about that too. And so this ongoing problem, will the people of God 
be pure in their associations. Who they allow into the court. Who they marry. Will the people of God prioritize God over money so that they won't violate the Sabbath and so that they'll provide for the Levites and all the people? Will they prioritize God in their lives? Will they be a pure people? And Nehemiah, Nehemiah says, man, it's a problem. Malachi writes his book and it's the same stuff. He gets to the end. And I just want to read a couple verses from Malachi because I know I've read a lot. But if you go to the end of Malachi, and if you know where Malachi is, it's a really easy one to find. You know those 12 minor prophets are there like, I have no idea. Like, I kind of get in there and I just kind of keep thumbing. I know Amos is here or whatever. Go to Matthew, new, first book in the New Testament. Go back one book, it's Malachi. No problem. So it's the last book in our English Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 3, Malachi is writing about the same stuff. And one of the things he tells us is that God does remember his faithful remnant in a nation that goes its own way. Malachi chapter 3 verse 16. Listen to what the Bible says. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. You know what I know? I know this. When Nehemiah said three times, God, remember me, remember me, remember me. You know what I know about this? God said, I got it, Nehemiah. It's in a book of remembrance. I see what you've done. That prayer was answered. But you know the other thing I find in Malachi? Talks about the same old sins. When you come to chapter 4, he points his way forward. And he says, at some point in the future, we need the hearts of the fathers turned back to the hearts of the children. There needs to be a forerunner that comes. You know who that is, folks? That's John the Baptist. And he says, and we need God to step on the scene. We need sun in the midst of darkness. And that particular verse in Malachi 4 is quoted almost verbatim in Luke chapter 1 and verse 78 when Jesus is described as the sun who comes in the midst of darkness. And both Nehemiah who says, all I can pray is that you remember me. Because the people are like that broken CD that keeps repeating. Malachi says, you're right, Nehemiah. God will remember you. But God will do something better. For a people that cannot keep their promises, God will keep his promises. And he will send a forerunner. And he will send a Messiah. He will keep his promises. He will establish a brand new covenant in which people are transformed not from the outside by just doing things for a short period of time. They will be trans transformed from the inside as God through his spirit 
brings a kind of change that only God can bring in the heart of a person. So that we can realize what it means to be promise keepers. The nation of Israel, they failed again and again and again. A broken CD. Christ, the promise keeper, who transforms us as the people of God who believe and trust in Him alone because we are sinners that can't do it on our own, that need that internal transformation. We come to Him and we say, Save me! Otherwise, I will be nothing but a broken CD. Save me! And He gives us of His Spirit and changes us from the inside out. Now, are we perfect promise keepers? No. Does Doug Finkbeiner struggle with purity and his associations, and, 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 and prioritizing God so that his whole life is about God more than about himself. If you're like me, I struggle with that stuff too, don't you? But I'll tell you this. What they couldn't do, we can if we know Christ. I'm not saying we always do, but I'm saying we can. Because we are connected to the living God in a personal way. Despite our best efforts, people cannot be promise keepers apart from God's supernatural work through His Messiah. So I'd say, if you don't know Christ, you may be a very good person. But you're a CD that keeps repeating itself. Only those that know Christ can begin to live out what God always designed men and women to be from the beginning. We don't do it perfectly, but we can do it progressively. So I don't know where you are. Maybe you're still trying to cut your, do it your own way, and I say come to Christ then because you can't. You say, no, Doug, I'm, I, I know Christ. I know the ultimate promise keeper, Jesus Christ. I know him. Then let us live in a way that we prioritize God above our own financial gain. And let us, let us be very, sensitive and keen on keeping our relationships pure. Because folks, we are embarking on kind of a new venture for us as a church, aren't we? We don't even know what it's like to have our own building. (laughs) We laugh. I remember that first building where we used to have to haul tables up over second floor remember that thing we used to lift down tables from second floor to i don't even know where that place was but tim would tim knows all the story but i mean i wasn't i was like there only because i would come in repeatedly but so i was there enough to see the transition from we were at a mason lodge wasn't it a mason lodge yeah here we are we're embarking on this kind of new thing we're actually going to have our own building it's going to be kind of weird during the week you can actually go to the church if you want and not ask anybody's permission you know it'd be kind of kind of kind of an interesting thing do you not know that Satan would love to destroy this work in Washington. 
You, you know that, right? You know that. We can be promise keepers because we know the promise keeping God. Will you let him do his work in your life? To be a men and women, boys and girls that prioritize him, seek to be pure in our relationships <laughs> and see what God does. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. It's a, it's a bit of a minor key from Nehemiah's perspective, and we get that because he's speaking from the old covenant, Lord. And yet, God, you are the God of all hope who has promised from the foundation of the world that your son would die for the sins of the world. And on Good Friday, you kept your promise. And you said he would be buried and resurrected, and you kept your promise. And you said he would ascend on high, and you kept your promise. And you said he would rule as king, and you keep your promise. And you said he's coming back one day to claim what is his, and you will keep your promise. Will you do a work in our hearts that only you can do? That we might grow as promise keepers, as your people. In Christ's name I pray, amen.